You ever fallen asleep when you should have paid attention? Maybe in a class that you were supposed to prepare for as a, for a test coming up and you decided to fall asleep in class on review day. Maybe it was in church. You were looking forward to hearing the message and a few minutes in, you were out. Or at least you looked like you are awake, but internally you had checked out. I think all of us, maybe a time or two, for some maybe hundreds, we've fallen asleep. And this, this morning we're going to be talking about two things specifically in this text in Acts. We're back in Acts chapter 20. Number one, the journey continued, and number two, the death assumed. Um, and we're going to wrap all of that up with the simple statement that we need to wake up. We need to wake up. So number one, the journey continued. We're going to be reading verses one through six. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to set sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secondus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Paul has just endured what seems to be another terrible uproar or riot caused in the previous city of Ephesus over the fact that they had lost business creating little trinkets, if you will, or idols or souvenirs for Diana. His preaching and discipling of others ruined the, the business of that city. You see, most people don't care how much you do until it affects their bottom line. And Paul came, seems to keep seeing this wherever he goes. As soon as the bottom line is affected in that city that he goes to, they turn on him. Everybody's fine with a Bible study until it affects their bottom line or the people that they know. Everybody's fine with the church's gathering if they don't affect them. Which is why the argument today in modern Christianity, and ultimately even in our country, is the separation of church and state completely revamped to what it originally stated. Unfortunately, most of us, when we see what Paul goes through here, we don't adjust, we don't pivot the way Paul does. We don't have the boldness that he does to continue while he still has a chance. Most of us duck at the first sign of some trouble. You see, Paul leaves to go to Macedonia, where he ends up writing his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, which is a follow-up to the first letter where he confronts them about very similar things that people go through today in churches, divisions. Divisions in churches, inconsistent Christian behavior, does that sound like a topic today? Or even the importance of using your spiritual gifts properly in the church context. You see, Paul brought up the coming kingdom of Christ throughout his letter to the Corinthians. The church took some of Paul's warnings seriously, but managed to still question whether he qualifies as an apostle. 
which caused Paul to write a rebuttal to those that question his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, what's interesting is Paul's argument of the kingdom continues in 2 Corinthians, where although the position is that Christ has now won, it is a tension of already but not yet, if you will, eschatologically. Christ has conquered on the cross, but he has yet to set up his reign on this earth. And all that was, it was literal, as assumed by his own disciples that were with him. They thought that he had come to reign rather than suffer. Unfortunately, much of Christendom today no longer holds to a little reign of Jesus Christ. They hold to a figurative or spiritual reign. They no longer hold to a literal reign of Christ on earth, and they've just about spiritualized every literal promise to Israel that has yet to be proven fulfilled by applying it in some spiritual sense to the church. You see, God worked with a literal nation of Israel, and church, he's going to work with a literal nation of Israel in the future. It's not up for debate. If God didn't keep his promises to them, how can he be trusted to keep promises to us? Just because our future is secure does not mean that there's no real spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. You see, Satan and his demons influence those that rule on this earth. I don't know if you're aware of a lot of the things that are going on, they are demonically influenced. And I don't mean it in a um, you know, conspiratorial type of sense, because there really is a real conspiracy behind the scenes. There really is. There are those that plot against the church. There are those that plot against the people of Israel. And there is God who stands in opposition to that. You see, Satan and his demons influence those that rule on this earth. Unfortunately, there are very few that truly rule as God would want them to. Unfortunately, most politicians today, when they come to rule, they, they, they throw things out there that I love God or I worship as you do, trying to convince everyone that they have righteousness as the standard. But as you watch, as they rule, as they govern, as they lead their nations, godliness is not the standard. Holiness is not the standard. Tolerance of all sorts of vile behavior is the standard. You see, many of our presidents and leaders have used the title Christian to influence and sway voters without a regard for the literal return and reign of Christ. You see, most people don't believe that Jesus is actually coming back literally to reign. To them, it'll be quite a shock one day. Unfortunately, too many Christians are still busy setting up their own kingdom here rather than planning for the literal kingdom later. They're looking to pursue what they can have right now, not the pursuit of the kingdom yet to come. Here's what Paul writes in his reminder to the Corinthians. Now, mind you, this is in his travels here in Acts 20 that he makes this writing. It's still appropriate today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. He says this to the church of Corinth. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, 
who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Christ's sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, the same God who didn't need man's permission to call out light from darkness doesn't need man's permission today. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. He's not waiting for man to make his day, unfortunately, contrary to most of evangelical thinking. He's not waiting for you to be nice to him. He's not waiting for us to just give him some lip service. He is sovereign. He doesn't need man's permission to command the light to shine out of the darkness. That is why the gospel message is something that has to penetrate each and every heart. Man wasn't even around in the beginning. God didn't need his permission then. He doesn't need his permission today. God hasn't changed. Our perspective of him has changed. The absolute sovereignty of God is a doctrine that so many do not want to give credence to anymore. Unfortunately, much of Christendom has an inaccurate view of Christ when it comes to his future reign as well. It doesn't line up to the view of many believers that Christ will rule with a rod of iron. In fact, Revelations 19, 11 through 16 says this, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, uh, that's the saints, that's the saints, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is absolutely sovereign. And he will return as sovereign the ruler of this world. So many today misrepresent who he is. The only picture many in the church give of Christ is one that is a suffering servant. They leave off the reigning king. Or if they do give it credence, it's in a spiritual sense, not in a literally returning, ruling this earth sense. This is the Jesus the scripture shows us that Paul preaches. And we need to give others an accurate picture of him, church. 
You need to be able to relate to people that Jesus is compassionate and loving and He suffered on their behalf, but that He is coming back as ruler and king. And that you need to both accept Him as Savior and Lord. Because He is both. He is sovereign and He will remain sovereign. No one's going to change that. You see, Paul here continues to Greece, Achaia, Corinth, spends three years and then sees another disruption that occurs with more hoping to take him out. You imagine Paul's ministry always on the run? You start, you plant a church, you start discipling believers. Uh, Paul, they're out to get you again. Oh, Paul, this is a serious warning. They're about to kill you soon. You might want to move. All right, off to the next city. Nobody's bothering him there. He's not bothering anybody there. Builds a church, same result. He continues in his travels, hoping to make it back to Jerusalem in time for Passover. But he realizes there's a plot for his life. He has a group of men with him, possibly representatives or elders of other churches, as Timothy's actually mentioned in this list that we see. What's incredible is that Paul celebrates the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Philippi. Now, mind you, the whole holiday normally of Passover was referred to sometimes as the Feast of Unleavened Bread by many because it was included. Paul moves on from there to the city of Troas where he has an interesting preaching experience, to say none the least. Number two, death assumed, verses 7 through 12. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. <laughs> there was one. There, was many, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So there's a clear gathering the first day of the week, where more than likely the Lord's Supper is served and celebrated. The disciples there, they broke the bread in fellowship with one another. Now they were almost like good Baptists, they had a real meal there too. They weren't just giving you a little bit of juice and crackers. They had a real fellowship meal. Where towards the end of it, they would celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Usually in the middle or towards the end. Now, we don't know exactly when Paul started speaking. That's the one thing we don't see in the text. When did Paul start speaking? We know he preached through midnight. Did he start at 10, 6 in the evening, 11 at night? We don't know. We do know that he preached past midnight, though. And it's very obvious. Here's what's interesting in this text. I don't know if you picked up on it. 
It's obvious that Paul was going to leave the next day. So as many of us do, and I think we've all done this, right? We want to squeeze as much time that we can with somebody right before they leave, right? All right, just stay up. One, you're leaving tomorrow morning. I know you need to get enough sleep for the trip, but stay up. Let's chat. This is our last night together. So Paul's just preaching through midnight. And unfortunately, some things go kind of wrong in a sense to people. It was obviously getting dark because there's a lot of lamps that are put up there. As Paul continues speaking, there's a young man named Eutychus who is falling asleep. Now see, I always have a hard time reading this story because I have people in mind when I read stories like this and Rick's bath was one of them. I'm telling you, I don't know why every time I read this I think Rick's bath. Just a side note. So this man is falling asleep during the message. By the way, falling asleep during the message is biblical. It's found in the Bible. Sorry, Doug. Paul is speaking late into the night. So I guess we should stay till midnight tonight too, right? No. Um, and Eutychus is having a hard time staying up. He's st having a hard time staying awake to the point of falling asleep into... I'll fall into a deep sleep, if you will. Now, I, I, I actually do enjoy reading commentaries on these passages. I like to see what other commentators think. And I love Vernon McGee's commentary on this. This is great. He says, I confess that Paul's experience has always been a comfort to me. When I look out at the congregation, I see my brother or sister out there sound asleep. I say to myself, it's all right. Just let them sleep. Paul put them to sleep too. <laughs> See, unfortunately though, for Eutychus, it was much worse than just falling asleep. He fell asleep in a window that was three stories up and then ended up plummeting to his death. Imagine with me everyone around just listening to Paul and he's, he's, he's expositing something, right? And all of a sudden, It was louder than that, I'm sure. And you see someone motionless right there. Now, we can laugh about it now, right? Because we know how the whole story ends. But could you imagine you're sitting there in a service, you're hearing Paul preach, and all of a sudden someone drops three stories down. Picture that. I could uh, imagine the shrieking that's going on. I'm assuming that others that were almost asleep probably woke up at that point. Possible screams were let out as people were more than likely terrified by this. Paul drops down next to him and somehow through bodily contact and the power of the Holy Spirit is able to bring the young man back to life. By the way, it's very similar to the Elisha story in the Old Testament, if you actually look that up. Paul tells those around not to be concerned because he's alive. Now, my favorite part of this narrative, believe it or not, is not that part. My favorite part is not just the miracle that has just occurred, but what follows the miracle. They go back upstairs to celebrate what seems to be the Lord's Supper. 
we're going to continue the program. We're going to continue doing what we said we're going to do. Let's segue to the Lord's Supper. You okay, Eutychus? We're going to get back to what we said we're going to do. He's fine. Let's continue. Let's go partake in the Lord's Supper. Let's eat some more food. You see, most of us would have called it a night. All right, we don't want anybody else falling out of the third story window. I think that's enough for one night. Not these disciples, not the Apostle Paul. They continued. Paul seems to have continued talking till the early hours the next morning. He kept talking to them for hours after this incident. Now, mind you, I think more were probably awake at this point, though. I think those that were drifting off were probably a little more alert now. The text then simply concludes, and I love that this is included by Luke, and I think we miss these very obvious statements in Scripture. The text then simply concludes that the young man was all right after all this. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts this text. Acts 20, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. You, you have to ask what time they're eating together at this point, right? Like, this has got to be very late. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. And Luke doesn't stop there. He finishes with verse 12. Meanwhile, I love that he throws this detail in there for us. The young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. Whew. That was a very long night. Could you imagine the stories they could tell later on? Could you imagine that incident repeated to people that they knew? So yeah, I was at this very late night, midnight, if you want to call it, Bible study. We were up all night. Some guy dropped from three stories, was dead, was resurrected. We know because we saw him go home. Let me tell you about Christ. There's another opportunity for a testimony right there. Now, see, some of you are like, well, I don't have any stories that incredible. I don't have anything this impressive to share with people. But some of you have broken lives that God changed. That's impressive. That's something that only the gospel can do. Some of you have anxiety that the only way you know how to cope is by going into the Word of God and finding strength. It's the only thing. Some of you know your marriage wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for Christ. Some of you know that your love for your kids is reflected ultimately by what you've seen God do for you. What's amazing here is it's almost as if Luke knows somebody may ask what happened to that young man, and that's why he includes that detail. Let me reassure you once again, readers, he was fine. He simply reassures us that everything worked out just fine. 
you're probably wondering as you've read through this text, what can, what can I really take away from all of this practically? I mean, like, what, what part of all of this really applies to me? I don't know if you knew this, but the name Eutychus means fortunate. I think he was quite fortunate that day. I think dropping that far out of a window to your death and being resurrected, raised to life, is being very fortunate. I think, unfortunately, for many of us, we don't realize how fortunate many of us that are followers of Christ really are. So many of us have been fortunate, just like Eutychus. We've made poor choices, fallen into sin, and some how God has still given us mercy to wake up this morning. Somehow we're still breathing today. Listen, church, banking on mercy when we're falling asleep to God's word spoken to us is an unsure bet. We gamble with things outside our control. We assume nothing will happen because nothing has happened so far. There are a lot of Christians living in that perspective. Unfortunately, if we continue asleep spiritually, more so than just simply asleep physically, we are in serious danger. I want us to take a quick look at a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, where he actually, actually uses this analogy of being asleep. We're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This is the practical, if you will, of the sermon this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 is what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light." Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Listen, church, there's a lot to unpack here, but I want to summarize a few things that Paul makes a statement to the church of Ephesus on. He starts off by saying that we are to imitate God with our lives. We're to love the things that he loves, hate the things that he hates. 
I know Brother Doug has brought an excellent text last week on holiness. And if there's one thing that we are all called to is to be saints, which means to be set apart. It's in the title that we're given. Which is what Paul says here is you are to imitate God with your life. Another thing that he states here is you are to sacrifice of yourselves for others as Christ did. This is not a showy, let me show you how much like Jesus I am compared to you. That's not what we're talking about. This is a sacrifice that's humble, that doesn't brag. There are a lot of people that sacrifice but want to post it all over Facebook. We're not talking that. We're talking you sacrifice and you humble yourself as Christ did. Condemning somebody for not sacrificing as we do is not a humble attempt. He also mentioned sexual immorality, impure, greedy lifestyles should not be hinted by believers. They should not even be hinted by your lifestyle. If you're a child of God, it's not right, it's not proper, it's not fitting for you as a saint. I'm using multiple translations for what he says there. Just because the world is fine with it does not mean that God is fine with it, church. You and I are asleep spiritually if we don't see that these warnings are to be taken seriously for us as a church. Your happiness is the ultimate pursuit in God himself. Not what your desires are. Your greed, if you will, as is mentioned here, your desire for advantage, if you will, is something that you should push away. Which is why knowing the sacrifice of Christ is always important to go back to. It's something that should not be seen in you. So many Christians that are greedy are absolutely living antithetical lives to what Christ has called them to. I've told this to the youth many times as I was preaching to them throughout the years, that make as much money as you can so you can give as much as you can. It's not a matter of how much you're making. It's do the best that God's given you the ability to make and do in your life so that you can then give it away because it's not yours to begin with. We can't take any of that with us. And yet, so many Christians, they're so greedy. So many Christians are marked by wanting more for themselves. And they're not willing to give to anyone else. They're very, very selfish. You are to sacrifice your desires for his desires. And many times they are the hardest in these areas that are mentioned. I want you to know, church, that all these things that Paul says here, he says to different churches, because it's a common problem in every church. It isn't that just the church of Ephesus struggled with these things. The church of Corinth struggled with these things. Philippi struggled with these things, even though they are commended more than most churches. All churches struggle with these areas. You are to sacrifice your desires for His. There should be no hint of these things in your life, believer. 
Now here's my question. If there's to be no hint of these things in my life and your life, is that even something we're striving for? I'm not arguing that we can't fall in this area because obviously this is a warning to the church. But is that even something we're striving for that, you know what, I don't even want the hint of sexual impropriety in my life. I don't want the hint of people calling me a greedy Christian. I don't want the hint of people saying that I'm impure or I'm somehow vulgar. Listen, he also mentions, be careful what comes out of your mouth. The idea behind some of these words for speech that Paul has communicated is vulgar, foolish talk that just wastes the precious time that God's given you. Mocking or ridiculing what is sacred, as scoffers do. There's nothing more gross in the church than when someone mocks the sacred things of Scripture. And ultimately what they do is they blaspheme God. As one commentator puts it, all God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. To joke about them is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. Listen, there's one thing that you, will, you and I will always notice when we're around people in the world. They joke about things they don't care much for. Husbands will joke about their wives because they really don't value their wives the way they ought to. Women will make fun of men because they don't respect their own husbands. Children are dismissed in society because they're a nuisance to many people. And we, church, ought to be different. Which is why, for us, it should matter tremendously that we have a Christian school and we're bringing these kids in the knowledge and admission of the Lord. We're trying to raise them to be disciples of Christ. It's more than just a paycheck for us. It's more than just building a brand. These are kids' lives on the line. And the world wants to say, ah, it's not a big deal. Make them all the same. Copy, paste, copy, paste, repeat. They're souls in need of Christ. Paul continues to build on this to confirm that a person who is defined by this kind of life can be assured that he has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Christ will not be mocked in his sacrifice, church. We will be ashamed if we don't take these words seriously before Christ, those of us that know him. This is obviously written to the church of Ephesus, a group of believers. So it has to be taken in that context. But church, we need to be careful not to dismiss other warnings of Scripture that warn of self-deception. None of the least of which is the famous text in Matthew 7 dealing with false teachers. In Matthew 7 it says in verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This word should strike all of us. And I think it's skipped many times when we read this text. Many will say to me in that day, 
It's not a few. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Look, contextually, Jesus is talking about false teachers that tell people they are for Christ, but in practice are living disregarding him. They disobey the laws of God. There's one thing that I've said to many people, including the youth, just the other weekends. Be careful who you get your discipleship advice from, believer. There's a lot of garbage in the social media realm that people get sucked into. Oh, this wonderful preacher, he's teaching me all these wonderful things I've never seen before. And your first red flag that should go up, you've never seen before. You might want to listen to Solomon's words on that, there's nothing new under the sun. Maybe that new thing is just something repackaged that you should be aware of. Be careful who you go to advice for, believer especially on how to live the Christian life. If you're getting your advice from a friend who's wrapped up in a similar sin that you are in, you're both in danger. Neither one of you is helping each other out. If you're more about pursuing your own happiness, then at least pause and consider the people around you when you make your sinful choices. They will affect those around you, whether you like it or not. Realize that your sinful choices will affect, if you want to outright reject the warnings of Scripture, they will affect others. Look, let's face it, parents, sometimes God uses our influence in our children's lives to give us a wake-up call, does He not? Some of us want to hide our sinful choices from others thinking it can't really harm them, they, don't, they can't really harm them, they don't know about it. Listen, it comes right out. They may not know every single thing, but, but I promise you, your response to your spouse will come right out. They'll see it. Your response to the circumstances that you all are dealing with as a family will come right out. They'll know whether the Word of God has been much of a priority lately. Believe me, it comes out of all of us. When those children get older, what authority will we have in their life when we've secretly been indulging in sin? and knocking the very authority God has placed in our own lives. You see, Paul continues in Ephesians 5, verse 6, and tells them to let no one deceive us with empty or vain arguments. It's amazing to me how, how easy it is to sway Christians that, oh, this really isn't that big of a sin. It's not a big deal. You could totally live that lifestyle and be saved. Don't worry about it. Jesus never said anything about that. Don't worry about it. So apparently we're supposed to be okay with everything else that Jesus may not have mentioned directly. But he completely implies it in making clear statements. Listen, a lot of people will deceive us with empty or vain arguments to indulge in sin. It doesn't take much to indulge in sin. Don't do what others that don't know God do, believer. 
when it comes to sin. And one of the things that they always do is dismissing it for what it really is. I'm saved. Why do I even need to worry about that? You're asleep spiritually. Listen, he makes a statement. You were darkness, church. Now you're light. You were to live like the light. You should be a light, and that is across the board without any exceptions. God doesn't give you this mechanism where he goes, you know what, this part right here, you're totally fine to stay in darkness. I'll redeem that later. He redeemed all of you, believer. And obviously there's a real struggle that goes on for all of us. Your lifestyle should be one that pleases God. A life that is lived in gratitude for what he has done for you. Most Christians that are not grateful are in the most sin. Most sin that we fall into is our lack of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And for God and his gifts that he's given us. My spouse isn't enough because I'm not grateful to God for them. My children aren't enough because I'm not grateful to God for them. My work is not enough because I'm not grateful to God for that. My church is not something I'm grateful for, ultimately, which is why I complain. The people that minister with me, I'm not grateful for, which means that I will not have the right approach to them. Gratitude is a key ingredient in appreciating what God's given us. And it's a key ingredient in fighting off many of the selfish desires that we have. Because most of us, if we were paying attention when we fall into sin, it's because I'm just not grateful. I'm sinning in this area because I don't get to do that right now. And I don't want to wait three years out, out the way to be able to finally do what I can financially. I need it now. Which is why I get enslaved by debt and then I hate the whole world for it. Essentially, when we deliberately choose to go against what Scripture has clearly revealed, we're simply saying, thanks but no thanks, God. I know better. I know you love me. I know you care for me. But you've still left me hanging with this being a single person, with my spouse, with this job, with this church. God, you've left me hanging in all these areas. Let me figure it out on my own. I don't need your help. Maybe God won't send you the right person because the way you're living only attracts those that live contrary to his word. Maybe if holiness was the agenda for us, our relationships would get a whole lot better. Maybe trying to take shortcuts when it comes to personal greed, desire for more for yourself, thinking you'll somehow get ahead, was always meant to leave you behind, desperately hanging on. Because your only satisfaction was only to be found in Christ. Listen, Paul makes a statement, don't participate in worthless works of darkness, but instead live an upright life exposing the darkness. You can't expose the darkness and be the light if you are walking in darkness yourself, believer. You can't do it. You have nothing to offer the world if you're partnering with them in sinful behavior. And don't do the, I'm going to jump in in the sinful behavior and then go, go 
deflect to somebody else to talk to you about Jesus. God's called you to be the lights. Not another pastor, not another person in the church. If you are a child of his, you are to walk in the light yourself. Nobody can live the Christian life for you. Your spouse can't, your children can't. And you can't do it for them either. You will never be a good testimony if you live just like others that don't know God do. But you come to church on Sunday as your difference maker. It's not enough, church. It's not. One translation puts it well here in verses 10 and 11. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. You and I can't expose the darkness if we join with the darkness. It's impossible to do that. You can't bring light if we join the other side, if you will. So many Christians join the dark side and they wonder why they're not being a light. It should be so obvious. Since God will bring all things ultimately to light, it is vital for us as followers of Christ to wake up from our sleep, church, and God will bring others to himself through that light. The original quote in verse 14 comes from Isaiah 60 to the nation of Israel. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Listen, church, God has called the nation of Israel as his special people, and he's also called us to be a reflection of his glory, of his light to the nations. That will one day come to fruition when people look at the nation of Israel that's turned to Christ as their Messiah. But in the meantime, God calls the church to take that gospel message to others and be the light themselves. The future is still awaiting Israel. But in the meantime, God has called the church to wake up. Wake up. So conclusion, simply put, are you asleep? Are you asleep? I'm talking spiritually. Have you even put up much of a fight with sin lately? Or is that, ah, years ago I used to fight a lot more with sin and I kind of been more casually going about my Christian life. If you've got nothing to repent of, you've got nothing to confess before God, then you really have not paid attention in your walk with God. David made it a point to confess sin with him. Many of us tend to mature from that somehow. At least we believe that that's maturing. It's not. Paul confessed sin before God. You see, maybe the sins you've struggled with throughout your walk with as, as a disciple, you've grown numb to. You're just used to it. Why, I've already fallen into this so many times. I'm so sick and tired of trying to do better. It seems like nothing is working. Believer, that does not mean you give up. There is no quit in the Christian life. I know we want to teach our sons, those of us that are men, to not quit on when things get tough in life. 
That's across the board for every soldier of Christ. There's no quit. We keep fighting. Does that mean you won't fall? Of course it means you will fall, but you get back up. And you continue fighting again. You don't throw up your hands in the air and say, I can't. It's over. I've tried too often. Maybe you don't even have conviction over sin. Maybe you're one of those that goes, you know, I'm really fine. Nothing's really happened lately. I don't think God's going to do anything. What's the point of me even worrying about this? I've been kind of doing this for years anyways. Let me be clear about one thing. That's a very dangerous place to be. That's a very dangerous place to be. And I promise you, if you are God's child, you really don't want to be in that place. Because there are so many different ways that God will have to deal with you as you continue to harden your heart that it may end up being your life terminated. Maybe essentially you're spiritually dead. You have no desire for the things of God, what Jesus has done. You don't, it doesn't resonate with you at all. He rose because he conquered sin and death, but that doesn't matter to you. Jesus is just a quick fix for you. You just want to feel better about yourself. That's not the gospel. You have to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Because Jesus came because you're a sinner. You need to see your need for a savior. You can't save yourself. None of us can save ourselves. Even if you improve a little bit on your morals, that doesn't save you. Which is why Christians that live immoral lives are shocked that God somehow is still merciful to them, and so they just take advantage of it. God's called you to holiness, church. If you've already done that, you've already made Christ, if you will, Lord, because he already is, not just Savior of your life. You have to understand, God calls you to much more than what you're living right now. He's calling me to much more than I'm living right now. And when I read these texts of Scripture from Paul, I get convicted that many, in the, many areas that I think I'm awake in, I'm actually asleep. I'm still half asleep, half awake. I'm really not fully awake to those things. So church, as we close, God's word is calling you to repent, to awake from sleep. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light.